0: Please take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, I'll be reading from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. This is what Holy Scripture says. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything... Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. It's always such a blessing uh, to worship God with my brothers and sisters at GFC. Uh, I always enjoy these pulpit swaps, even if they are last minute, even if I come to you today as the, uh, the poor man's Mike Bulmore. Uh, but I have no doubt that God will richly bless New City as Pastor Stephen Kim opens up the word to them this morning. And along with Tristan, uh, I pray the same for us, that we might be blessed and God glorified as we look into his word of this Lord's Day, did you know uh, that both Charles Dickens and Mark Twain believed the parable of the Prodigal Son to be the best short piece of literature in existence? It's true, uh, and from the perspective of mere literary criticism, of all Jesus parables, by virtually unanimous scholarly consent. Uh, The prodigal son is considered to be Jesus' best parable, his literary masterpiece, if you will. However, Christians shouldn't speak of Jesus' parables in those sorts of terms. Uh, It's inappropriate. It's irreverent. It's it's dangerous, even, I would argue, uh, because Jesus is the crucified, he is the risen Lord, and he's the God of all creation, not just some storyteller. And Jesus' parables, as we possess them in the Bible, are holy scripture. They are God's authoritative divine revelation to fallen humanity. What did we just uh, confess a few minutes ago? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. People don't say that after they read a passage of David Copperfield. But this parable has served as the muse, the inspiration for many famous artists, painters such as Rembrandt and the composer Debussy, and it's easy to see why. It packs an emotional punch. On a certain level, it offers its readers a very realistic and touching portrait of family life, of a child's rebellion and a father's unconditional love. But in the church, within the community of faith, This parable is also probably the unanimous favorite. Not on account of its literary form or pacing or character development, but due to the message, the teaching, the theology behind the story. This parable is a treasure trove of insight into God's love for lost sinners and the hope of divine forgiveness in the face of human rebellion following Craig Blomberg's proposal, which I think makes a lot of sense, each point Jesus makes in the parable relates to a character in the story. So here we have three characters, the father and his two sons, which means this parable makes three points, one for each person. However, these characters don't just represent themselves, they represent people outside the text. Uh, The two sons... Represent us, all of us, sinners in need of humble repentance, sinners who should be glad and not mad that God's grace extends to even the worst offenders. And the Father in this story represents God. And the character of the Father shows us the love and the patience and the forgiveness of God. Now, the first character in our story is the prodigal son himself. And by the way, prodigal uh, is someone who, a prodigal is somebody who wastes money extravagantly. And the point that Jesus makes with his character is this. You can see this in your bulletin. Point number one, even as the prodigal son always had the option of repenting and returning home, So also all sinners, however wicked, may confess their sins and turn to God in humble repentance. Friend, you you may not know this, but that is the best news a human being will ever hear. The truth of Jesus' first point is occasion for great rejoicing and has a direct bearing on the eternal welfare of our eternal souls. Now you may disagree, I mean, from your perspective, uh, the best news you could ever hear may be wrapped up with the lotto 649 jackpot or things related to family life or your health or marriage or fame, Uh, but you're 100% wrong. This is the best news you will ever hear. All sinners, however wicked, may confess their sins and turn to God in humble repentance. And then taking in point two, and God will forgive them. Okay, let's set the scene. This parable begins with a young Jewish man requesting his portion of of the family inheritance before his father dies. And in an inconceivable demonstration of patience and love, the father grants his request. In this culture, both these actions are unheard of. What the son is requesting is culturally unconscionable. It's appalling behavior. It's the equivalent of wishing his father were dead. Will, what would it mean, what would it say to the world about what you think of your father's family if you changed your last name from Martin to Humperdinck? Unless you're in the Witness Protection Program, uh, that sends a very clear message to the world. Paul, what would it mean, what would it say to the world if you took Ali out of your will? What does it mean if a wife takes off her wedding ring and throws it in her husband's face? All of those actions speak of severing relationships, don't they? And by making this request for an early inheritance... What this young man is doing is he is severing his relationship with his father. He is removing himself from his family. He is renouncing his sonship. You are no longer my father. I am no longer your son. And in this culture, after honor to God, there is no greater duty than honor to one's parents. This young man is dishonoring his father. He is bringing shame onto the family. Now, familial shame can be a tricky concept for some of us to understand if you're Korean or from the Middle East. Got it down pat. Uh, But Canadians, not so much. But in the West today, we usually think of shame in individual terms, don't we? By embezzling at the office to fund my cocaine addiction, I've brought shame onto myself. Me, myself, and I. Uh, But in the context of our story, shame is always, always communal. Your personal shame is imputed to your family or your community. And in the first century Jewish audience, when they they heard this young man asking for an early inheritance from his father, they would have been aghast. And again, that a first century father would grant such a request is an almost inconceivable expression of love and patience. So look at verse 13. I'm reading from the NIV. Not long after that, The younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So the son departs, he turns his early inheritance into cash, and goes to live among the Gentiles of a distant land, a people who do not know or fear the God of Israel. And we need to be looking at all this through the perspective of the audience to whom Jesus is relating the parable. We need to fuse our our cultural horizons. This young man first dishonors his father, he brings shame to his family, and then he leaves the land of Israel, the land God promised to the patriarch Abraham to live in a land where God's presence does not reside because at this point in salvation history, God locally dwells in the Jerusalem temple in the Holy of Holies. He's now living in a land removed from the temple, system of sacrifice for sin, God's presence, and in his foreign land, he takes to wallowing in wickedness. He's hiring prostitutes with his inheritance. And then, verse 14, after he spent all his money in wild living, a famine strikes the land. He needs to eat, so he hires himself out to a pig farmer, A job no right-thinking, God-fearing Jew would ever consider taking. Uh, According to the law of Moses, pigs are ceremonially unclean animals. And and if this were a a modern-day parable, the equivalent for us would not be, it would not be there was an economic downturn in the land, and so he became a septic tank repairman or a sewage diver. No, no. Our equivalent would be he became a pimp. He sold fentanyl. There's a moral dimension to this. But even though he's scraping the bottom of the the barrel, this lowly occupation, it's still unable to meet his needs, and he suffers from hunger. In fact, the pigs he's looking after are better off than he is. Verse 16, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Kids, can you imagine that? Have you ever been that hungry? That you've envied a pig at slop? you got to be pretty low down. This young man wants the food of unclean animals, and he cannot have it. Today we'd say he's living in the gutter. Worse, There's no one in the land to offer him food or comfort. He's all alone. Suddenly, he comes to himself. He comes to his senses. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. So he begins to develop a plan of action. He will act quickly and humbly. And and that's the key here. Humility. There is great humility on the part of the son. He knows, he knows he's forfeited his rights to sonship. He's already forfeited his rights to the inheritance. You know, but it's better to cast himself on his father's mercy, right, than to starve to death in a pig pen. Verse 18. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. This young man is going to place himself at his father's discretion. He asserts no rights, he recognizes he has no claims. His only hope is that his father will make him a day laborer, the lowest of three categories of laborer. And that's fine. Uh, He's prepared to be the lowest of the low. And notice, there are no excuses here. Only a confession of wrong and a humble request. So the young man repents. And he sets off for home. And the first point of our Lord's parable is this. Even as the prodigal son always had the option of repenting and returning home, so also all sinners, however wicked, may confess their sins and turn to God in humble repentance. Friend, are you here today... Mired in sin? Are you living in a pig pen? Are you starving to death, spiritually speaking? Even if you don't look like you're living in the gutter, even if you look quite respectable and clean and proper, what's on the inside? What's in your heart? Is it a pig pen of rebellion and shame? And spiritual starvation and separation from God? Are you living in self imposed exile away from your Creator? Jesus has good, good news, friends. It's right here, it's in the first point of the parable. No pit of sin is too deep that God's loving forgiveness isn't deeper still. The door to God's forgiveness is always open. There's no need to be starving to death in your own pig pen of sin for one second longer. Don't allow, friend, don't allow your arrogance or your pride or your self-righteousness to stand between you and the forgiveness of God for your sin and, and reconciliation to your heavenly father. Just like the prodigal son, there can be no excuses, only a confession of wrong and a humble request. Even as the prodigal son always had the option of repenting and returning home, so also all sinners, however wicked, may confess their sins and turn to God in humble repentance. The best news any human being will ever hear. So the son starts off for home and and the best he's hoping for is that his father will make him a bootlicker. But at least he'll have food. He'll be a full bootlicker. Verse 20. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him and friends this is the twist in this story this is the this is the part of the story where there would have been a collective gasp from jesus first audience this father is defying every every social convention here we have the slighted sinned against father the father whose son treated him like garbage and who brought shame to the family. Here we have the patriarch of the family, by by his culture standards, making a fool of himself, running towards his son. He's bunching up his skirts in his hands, looking very undignified, and he's throwing his arms around uh, the whoremongering wastrel of a son, and he's kissing him. This is a beautiful, beautiful picture, beloved, because the father in this story represents God. And the Son represents every sinner who humbles themselves before the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you see? There's hope. There's divine love. There's full, free forgiveness. God offers all people, however undeserving, lavish forgiveness of sins, if they're willing to accept it. Friend, perhaps the devil has fooled you into thinking that you're too sinful, you've behaved too wickedly in your life, that you are beyond the pale of God's love and forgiveness. Not so. This parable proves it. Jesus spoke this parable to give you joy and hope and comfort no matter what horrible things you've done in this life. Just look at the response of the father in this story. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. That's a picture of the sinned against, rebelled against, deliberately defied God, receiving the humble sinner into his family. So if you're sitting there with the guilt of your sin weighing you down, don't allow Satan to torment you for one more second through any kind of fear of divine rejection. God's word is clear. Your sin won't in any way inhibit God's joy in forgiving you fully and receiving you into his family. Verse 21, The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. That is how the God of the Bible responds to humble repentance. So be emboldened and cast yourself upon the Heavenly Father's love and mercy, sinner. And when God takes us back into His family, It's not as his eternal bootlickers. If we were God's eternal bootlickers, that would only speak to infinite mountains of grace and mercy. We don't deserve to be God's servants. We don't deserve our, our sins forgiven. We don't deserve the record of our treasonous anarchy wiped clean. We forfeited that right. It's forfeit. We deserve hell not the death of the eternal son in our place. Calvary is not a sinner's rightful privilege. Eternal life is not our rightful inheritance. But Jesus tells us that when we humbly repent and return to God, we're restored to the full privilege of sonship, of being a child of God. Did you notice? uh, The father in this story does a very surprising thing. He receives his son back with full restoration of privileges. It's as if nothing happened. All the shame this young man brought upon himself and his family, it's all been wiped away. It's all been forgotten. The prodigal son has returned into the full favor of his father. He's gone from utter destitution... To full restoration. He's a member of the family once again. And the father explains the reason for this celebration in verse 24. His son has been resurrected. This son of his was dead, but now he's alive. The father never expected to see his son again. He was lost, but now he's found. What Jesus is saying is this, our second point. Even as the father in this parable went to elaborate lengths to offer reconciliation to his lost son, so also God offers all people, however undeserving, lavish forgiveness of sin if they're willing to accept it. And as simple human beings who have forfeited the privilege of being in God's family, we need to be placing ourselves, all of us, We need to be placing ourselves into this story, right? We are the character of the lost son. Every human being who has ever lived must identify themselves with this character of the prodigal son. We're all, we're all just as bad as he is, we're all in the same predicament. If, if you're thinking otherwise, you are sorely mistaken. And as we read this parable, and as God's Spirit moves in our hearts, by God's grace, we'll experience the same wonderful shock and incredulity as the first century audience when they heard Jesus speak of the Father running down the road to meet his prodigal son. We'll think, we'll think, What? Even though I've treated God so shamefully by defying him in my sin, by de-godding him and living for myself and, and disobeying his holy commands, and for many years despising the good news of the sacrifice of his son, yet, yet, God will run down the road to meet me and throw his arms around my neck and kiss me Friends, you won't find passages like this in the Quran. You won't read parables of Allah running like an undignified person down the road, throwing himself with kisses at sinners who have defied him and wallowed in the mire of sin and immorality. That's because the God of the Bible... The God of lavish love, love. God says to his people, I have set my affection upon you from before the foundation of the world. Not because you are wiser or better or more lovable than anybody else, but because in my grace I chose you. You are mine, and nothing in all creation can separate you from my love as it's mediated through my son, Jesus. Now bear in mind, this parable takes place at a certain point in history. Jesus hasn't yet died on the cross for the sins of his people, so he really can't be explicitly teaching about his crucifixion and resurrection to the crowd. This, uh, they wouldn't understand what he's talking about. Uh, what Jesus is emphasizing in this parable is the connection between humble repentance and God's lavish forgiveness. But this side of the cross and resurrection, which is the climax of Luke's gospel, and we, we read everything that Jesus says and does in, in light of the climax of the book, and in the light of the rest of the New Testament revelation. We know we won't be received into full family privileges and the slate wiped clean apart from humble repentance as we come to Jesus Christ in faith. Everything, everything hinges on the good news of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin. And Jesus' atoning work on the cross stands across the centuries. Calling sinners to repentance, granting forgiveness, granting adoptive rights to prodigal children who forfeited their rights to God's family long ago. Friend, do you hear the offer that Jesus is making today? Full forgiveness of sins, full restoration of family privilege, a free gift given by God to all who humble themselves before the cross of Jesus Christ. Even as the father in this parable went to elaborate lengths to offer reconciliation to his lost son, so also God offers all people, however undeserving, lavish forgiveness of sin if they are willing to accept it which takes us to our concluding point. Number three, even as the older brother should not have begrudged his brother's reinstatement, but rather rejoiced in it, so those who claim to be God's people should be glad and not mad that God extends his grace even to the most undeserving. Now the attention turns to the elder brother's response to both uh, the prodigal's return and the father's unqualified acceptance of him. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound sibling rivalry can be an ugly thing it can also be very stupid um, kids do any of you have a pet do you have a pet a dog perhaps or a cat my mother is allergic to dogs and cats so when i was a kid uh, my two brothers brothers and i we we had to make do with goldfish uh, each brother had his own goldfish and there were times as a child i was the eldest brother There were times when I felt that one of my siblings had wronged me, and my pleas for justice had fallen on deaf ears. The little stinker had gotten away with it, but if I retaliated directly by beating him up, then I would be the one who was punished. The injustice of it all. So instead of venting my anger on my brother, without anyone knowing, I would take my brother's goldfish I would I would take it out of the tank and hold it in the air for about 10 seconds. Okay? that's the kind of demented kid I was. <laughs> then I put him back. Right. But now maybe that's maybe that's more an appropriate illustration for penal substitution. But I'm using it for sibling rivalry. You know? <laughs> the oldest son has been laboring away in his father's field diligently, faithfully. Uh, when he arrives at home, the celebration is already underway, and he calls over one of the servants. What's going on? The servant responds that the younger brother has returned home in good health and the father has taken him back into the family with joy. He's killed the fattened calf and he's throwing a party. But the elder brother is not pleased. He is angered by this news. This isn't right. The injustice of it all. To his thinking, two things are very wrong with this picture. Number one, the youngest brother had forever forfeited any claim to the family. He was done. That was just a cultural given. The shame that he had brought down onto this family was unforgivable. How, how dare he return? Secondly, it is wrong of his father to throw a party for this scumbag both his younger brother and his father are in the wrong and the older brother is so disgusted that he can't even bring himself to go inside the house so the patriarch of the family he has to leave the party and come out to meet the eldest son and plead with him But the older brother is very angry. He is totally unmoved by his brother's safe return. And he impugns his father's justice and fairness. Verse 29. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. He never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, you see the distance, when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Notice how he's, he's focusing on himself in opposition to his brother. The son who was obedient, even to the point of working like a slave, has no reward, no celebration. While the son who wandered away and squandered his inheritance on prostitutes is given a huge celebration. That the father should show grace to his youngest son infuriates the older brother. Do you see how perverse this is? The gracious father. The father who ran down the road with his skirts in his hand while his son was still a long way off before covering him with kisses. That beautiful, beautiful picture. He's now made to look unfaithful, unfair, ungenerous. Just, just take point number two, GFC, and, and wipe that truth from our Bibles. That, that's what the older brother would like. But listen to the father's tender reply. It's just as tender as his son's words are harsh. Verse 31, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. He's always had access to the celebration. All the father owns belongs to him. The prodigal brother's reinstatement into the family in no way diminishes the elder brother's status. Verse 32, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It was necessary For the household to celebrate a dead son, a dead brother, is now alive. That which was lost is now found. These are events that should result in great joy, not questions about fairness. What Jesus is telling us in this part of the parable is that even as the older brother should not have begrudged his brother's reinstatement, but rather rejoiced in it, so, those who claim to be God's people should be glad and not mad that God extends his grace even to the most undeserving sinners. What prompted Jesus to tell this parable? Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter. This is why studying the context is so important. Go back to uh, verse 1 of the chapter, chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What's prompted these parables? Verses 1 and 2 tell us it was the attitude of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. They were a self-righteous bunch who looked down on tax collectors and sinners. These people were to be despised. These weren't the kinds of people that you ate with. What's the application of these two parables? It's this. There is heavenly joy over the lost person who repents, no matter how wicked they are. Friend, God will go to great effort and rejoice with great joy to find and restore a sinner to himself. God is not the God of the few, the God of the wise, the God of only those who think that they pursue God like these Pharisees. He is the God who searches, finds, and cares for unlovable sinners like you and me. And so, Christians must not be a judgmental people. We ourselves have been forgiven an infinite debt. We couldn't hope to repay. And there does not exist a category of sin or a class of sinner whose sins are so extreme, so terrible, that the substitutionary, sacrificial, wrath-absorbing death of Jesus Christ will atone. Jesus' blood goes deeper than the stain has gone. And this truth needs to impact our lives in a thousand different ways, but just one. This truth needs to impact our evangelism, brothers and sisters. We need to be more bold and less judgmental and more indiscriminate with whom we share the gospel. This truth needs to impact for whom we pray that God might grant salvation Even to our enemies, to those who have treated us shamefully. As we have been graciously forgiven, so we must graciously forgive. And we must rejoice in the repentance that God grants even to the worst of sinners, even to sinners who have wronged or hurt us, who have perhaps sinned against us in disgusting ways. We must not be nurturing bitterness and hate. That would be a denial of the grace of the gospel. That would make salvation based upon something other than God's love in Christ. GFC, this text calls us to account. We must not be like the older brother and resent it when God grants full family rights to those who have humbly repented. We are all utterly undeserving. Even as the older brother should not have begrudged his brother's reinstatement, but rather rejoiced in it, so those who claim to be God's people should be glad and not mad that God extends his grace even to the most undeserving sinners. Even as the father in this parable went to elaborate lengths to offer reconciliation to his lost son, so also God offers all people, however undeserving, lavish forgiveness of sin if they are willing to accept it. Even as the prodigal son always had the option of repenting and returning home, so also all sinners, however wicked, may confess their sins and turn to God in sincere and complete repentance. Let's pray. Father, people are like grass, their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen.